Uh, so we're starting a series today. We were going to do it last week, start it up, but, you know, snow was crazy and we had to call things off, unfortunately, because our parking lot didn't get plowed in time. And that's how it goes. So I got here at 8.30, like I normally do, and it was like, I can't get in that parking lot. So nobody else is going to be able to. So we had to call it, sadly. But we're going to start this series. We're calling it God With Us. Um, it's, and essentially what we're doing for the, for the next few weeks is focusing in on the birth of Jesus, which is what, of course, Christmas is about. Um, and, and here's the thing. I know that for, for this many people in a room, um, not all of you are going to like Christmas. Okay, there's going to be some Scrooges and, and Grinches in this room, and that's okay, because I'm not here to convince you to love the holiday. The holiday, for some of you, may conjure up memories of terrible things. And I, I know that. I get that. Uh, and so I'm not here to convince you to love the holiday, but what I want you to see is Jesus, and I want you to love Jesus. Because wh- whether or not we care about the, the cultural sides of the holiday or not, um, this is the time of the year that the church has historically, for thousands of years, focused on the birth of Jesus. This is the time that the church historically chose to do that. And so it's not so much about the holiday itself as it is about Jesus and his coming to earth and what he's done for us. And, and what we want to look at, particularly this, this Christmas season, is what it means that God is with us. What does that mean? Jesus' name is, is, one of his names is Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word that means God with us. And so that's where that, that title comes from. And we want to look at the implications and the, the different realities that are there with Jesus being God with us. And so that's our hope. I'm not here to try to make you love Christmas or hate Christmas or any of that. It's, I want you to, to see Jesus this season. So that's where we're going to be. Um, and we're going to take a, just a few different uh, passages throughout the, the next month and look at what it means that God is with us. So to get there, we're going to start with the, I think, the, the most foundational of the implications of Jesus being with us. Um, and that's going to be found in Matthew chapter 1. Um, primarily, we're going to be looking at sh- verse 21, but we'll read the whole context so that you can see it. And then we're going to hone in on chapter 121. Um, but here's, here's something to just help us kind of set the, the framework for this series. Um, the, the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby uh, is pretty crazy, right? I mean, it, to think about God becoming a person and, and, to in, and entering in, not just like teleporting down here as like a full-grown man, but actually going through all of life the way that we do, that he was conceived differently than we're conceived. He was conceived by a miracle, but he was, he, he was in his mother. He was born. He was a baby. He grew. Uh, he, he, went through all of the things that we go through. It's a pretty phenomenal thing. And C.S. Lewis, um, who is one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote a book. You'd probably, if you've heard of C.S. Lewis, you probably know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, But he's written a lot of other books, all of them better than the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, No, I actually like the, I like Narnia, but I'm not, his other books are much better. Uh, And he wrote a book called Miracles. And he's talking about, he's trying to essentially defend 
the Christian faith in, in the world that he lived in, uh, which was very academic, did not really believe in the miraculous. And so he wrote a book called Miracles that defended the idea of the biblical teaching on miracles. And in one of those chapters, he talks about Jesus Christ becoming uh, a baby and, and being born into our world. And here's what he says about that. He says that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. So the incarnation, that's a fancy word for God becoming flesh, taking on flesh, becoming a person. And it says, he goes on to say this, they say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. And then later in the chapter, he says this, he brings it all together. He says, in the Christian story, God descends, comes down, in order to reascend. And he comes down, down from the height of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down into the very seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. And that really is a phenomenal way of explaining the purpose of Jesus' incarnation, of him becoming a person. It wasn't just to become a person. It was in order to bring the whole world up with him, to save his world, to save the people that are his people. And so that's, uh, that's just kind of is setting the, the tone and the framework for this. Um, and I think... It's, it's just an important way to start, to understand that this is the Christian message. And here's the thing, without the incarnation, there would be no crucifixion. Without the crucifixion, there would be no resurrection. And without the resurrection, there would be no salvation. So this, this all ties together that the, the birth of Jesus is the foundational thing in the Christian message because it leads to everything else that God would do for us in the gospel. And so that's where we're gonna go uh, today. So let's go to Matthew 1. We'll start in verse 18 and read down to verse 23. And then, uh, like I said, hone in on verse 21 particularly. So here's the story. You're probably familiar with it if you've uh, been, been to church uh, a ways here. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, Betrothed is a fancy word for legally engaged to be married. They weren't married yet, but there was a legal agreement that they would be married. It's different than how we do things here, Um, but that was how things were done then. So she's betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph is in this position where now Mary's pregnant. He knows it's not his. And he just assumes, like we would all assume, it's somebody's, right? He doesn't think the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that's, that's where he's at. And he's going, okay, I got to get out of this relationship. He's got, the only way to do that is to divorce her because there's a legal binding in their relationship, even though they weren't fully form, uh, formally married yet. But he decides because he's a good dude and he's, he's trying to be fair to her and doesn't want her to be an outcast for the rest of her life, he decides to do this not publicly to shame her, but to quietly get out of the relationship. So verse 20, But as he was considering these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And we're in Isaiah. We were just in Isaiah just a few weeks back. We read this passage. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. But they, they, he knew her not until she came, as she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So in this announcement uh, to Joseph about the birth of Jesus, he's instructed to stay with Mary and to name Jesus, Jesus. He's told, this is the name you're going to give this baby. Um, that's an unusual thing because most of the time parents have the, uh, the, the freedom to name their children whatever they want. But in this case, the angel says to, to Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. And there's a reason why. Here's the reason why. It says, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus is, is, derives from a word uh, in Hebrew, a name in Hebrew that means uh, the Lord saves. And so it, it, that's, that's where this is all kind of coming from. It's like even the name of Jesus is tied to the saving work uh, that God has for him. But the purpose of Jesus' life is tied up in his name, that he will save his people from their sins. And that's what I want to take uh, and look at today. Because the most foundational, most important thing about Christmas is that it reminds us that our God came to be with us in order to save us from our sins. Our greatest need in all of life is that our sins would be forgiven, that we would be saved, that we would be brought into his, his family, his, his, uh, his people. And so I want to tackle this verse just, the, just that phrase that he will save his people from their sins. I want to look at it a little bit at a time, and we're going to kind of go in reverse order. We're going to look at the phrase from their sin to start with so that we can unpack what we're being saved from. Then we're going to talk about what does it mean that he's going to save his people, his people, what does that mean? And we'll talk about what that means. And then we'll talk about um, the first part, which is he will save. So we'll, we'll unpack it that way. Um, so the first thing we see here, or the first thing we're going to look at here in this ex explanation of Jesus' name is that he will save his people from their sins. And, and we've got to understand what sin is. If we're going to understand what this, this saving is about, we need to understand what sin is. What are we being saved from? And, but, when you, but have you ever thought about, have you ever tried to define sin? Have you ever thought about like, okay, here's a definition of sin. It's not as easy as you would think. It's interesting. Um, it's not as simple as just rattling off some dictionary definition of sin. It's a very complex and nuanced thing, sin, sin is. And so it doesn't, there's not a singular definition in the Bible that says, okay, there's not a verse in a chapter that you can point to and go, this is the definition of sin. It's kind of, it reminds me like what um, the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart in 1964 said. He, there was a case before the Supreme Court where they were working on, um, they, were, they were trying to rule on some issues of 
pornography. And, and they were trying to dis- dis- define pornography. And he famously said this. He said, I don't know how to use words to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. That's true, right? And that is somewhat, I think, uh, what we're dealing with here with sin, where it's not just something that we can necessarily define with perfection and precision, but we know it when we see it. In fact, the Bible doesn't give us a singular definition of sin, but it gives us myriads of examples of it. Example after example. There, there's, like, we know sin when we see it. We, we feel it, we know it. Um, but just because we can't get a perfect singular definition doesn't mean we can't try. And so we'll try. Um, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not creating this. I'm just pulling this from uh, theologians who have done a lot of work over the centuries. And, and here's one definition I found that I think at least gets to capturing the different nuances of sin. It's from this little book called the New City Catechism. If you've ever heard of catechisms, uh, they're, they're little books, generally, sometimes not so little books, but they're question and answers. Uh, and they were used and still are used in, in some traditions uh, to ask a question and then have an answer so that you can train people on the doctrines of Christianity. And there's this little book called the New City Catechism, which has the question, what is sin? And then here's their answer. And I think that they do a really good job of answering the question. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. That's one. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. That's two. Not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot. So, like, there's a children's version of the New City Catechism that brings that to, like, one thing. I think they define it as not being or doing what God requires in his law. Because there's a, but, there's, but there's so much more to sin than just not doing what God says. There's also aspects of rejecting him, ignoring him, uh, rebelling against him, right? Th- this, I think, helps to, in, to cr- bring together the different facets of sin, But when you think about sin, this is the very thing that we are being saved from. We're being saved by Jesus from our desire to reject him and ignore him, from our desire to rebel against him by not living in reference to him, and and by not being what we should be. You know, one, one of the ways that we can understand sin is by looking at the Ten Commandments, and you rattle off the Ten Commandments, and you can compare that to yourself. Right, and go, okay, well, I'm not doing these things perfectly. I've, I've broken some or all of these commandments at different times. And that's, that's one aspect of sin, yes, but it's not the only one. It's also a demeanor of our hearts that are just, we just don't love God. We don't love him. We don't want to be in relationship with him. Everything gets broken because of our rebellion and sin. And that's what Jesus came into the world to save us from. He, he came to save us from our rebellion, from our rejecting, from our inability to live what we should live. And so this is all great news because Jesus doesn't let us die in our sin. He came so that we could live. And he, and he does this through his life and death and resurrection. Now, if we go to Romans chapter 3, we can see how all this uh, 
is, is understood through the work of Jesus. Right? Romans 3, particularly verses 23 through, 20, through 25. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So what that little passage tells us is that all of us are sinners. Every one of us has, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, if you continue to read all of chapter 3, if you back up to the beginning of 3, Paul makes that point without any, without any qualifications. Everyone is a sinner. He's trying to make that case that everyone is a sinner, whether you're born in the, to the Jewish uh, people or a Gentile people. Everyone is a sinner and everyone has fallen short of God's glory. However, there is this ability to be made right with God, to be justified before him by his grace as a gift, that God offers his grace to us as a gift. And, and I think largely why we give gifts at Christmas is because God gives us the greatest gift of all in Jesus, that is the forgiveness of our sins. And we give each other gifts to point to that, to remind us of that. That Yeah, these, these little trinkets and things that we give each other are temporary and they're not, they're not gonna last forever. But the, the act of giving is at the heart of God. And so we, we give because God gave as a gift his grace. And his grace was, was displayed through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation for our sins. And so what we're seeing here is this, that when Jesus came into the world, his purpose from the moment he was conceived all the way to his, through his perfect life, his, ultimately his death and his, then his resurrection on the third day, the whole point of that is that Jesus saves us by stepping into our place. He takes our place as sinners and he takes upon himself what's real sinners like you and me deserved. He becomes sin for us. That's what Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5. And he, he writes about this um, at the end of chapter 5. He's talking about how um, we, we are ministers of reconciliation to other people. That we are actually uh, called to tell people about this reconciliation that we can have with God. And, and here's what he says in verse 20 and 21. He says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became what we are, not just human, but ultimately stepping into our sin and becoming sin before the Father on our behalf. This, this is the amazing thing about the gospel, is that real sinners like me don't have to face real judgment from God because Jesus faced my judgment for me. 
He was my propitiation. He was the one who stood in my place and took the anger of God at my sin upon himself. Charles Spurgeon, who's a, who was a pastor, he's been dead a long time now. He was a pastor in the 1800s, uh, 1860s or so in London. And here, I'm going to read a couple of his quotes throughout this sermon, so just buckle up. But uh, I've been reading Spurgeon's sermons, so now you're just going to get a bunch of Spurgeon from now on. But um, Spurgeon writes this, and I think it's really helpful. He says, The first link between me, uh, between my soul and Christ, so the first thing that's between me and Christ, is not my goodness, but my badness. It is not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. Then he says this. He comes, Jesus comes to visit his people. Yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. There's no good in us patting ourselves in the back and saying, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good even. And, you know, I say this a lot here. We, we can always find a worse sinner than us. You can always find someone worse than you. And if you can't, you can always point to Hitler, right? You, can all, uh, you always can go back to Hitler. It's like no one's going to top that. So you can just go, oh, I'm not Hitler. Uh, and uh, like that's some kind of a justification for the fact that you are a sinner. <laughs> we, your comparison is not to Hitler or to anyone around you. It is actually, how do you compare to Jesus? And on every single metric, we fail completely on that. We are not Jesus. We will never be, full, well, we will one day be like him as he is, but we are not on this side of heaven in that position. We will always fail to be like Jesus. So our, our ultimate connection to Jesus is not my goodness, but my badness. And, and what's amazing in that is that even though that's my standing initially with Jesus, that is not where he leaves me. He comes to visit us. He became a baby to, to live a sinless life, to ultimately die for our sins, to be ra- risen from the dead. And he didn't do any of that to just ad- come down here and admire how great we are. Like if, God wanted to, if Jesus wanted to admire greatness and beauty and wonder and perfection, he would have stayed in heaven. No, he came down to earth not to admire us, but to heal us not to reward us for all of the great things that we do, but to actually forgive us of our sins. And that's, that's really what is at the heart of the Christmas message, that Jesus came to forgive us and to save us from our sins. Now let's look at the next thing, though, the second part of this. It says that he will save his people from their sins. All right, so now this is the question. If, if he's coming to save, who is he coming to save? And the answer that the angel gives to Joseph is his people. His people. Okay, so what makes us, this is a really important question, right? What, what makes us his people? Because if he came to save his people, we want to make sure we're in that category, right? We want to make sure we're there in that camp, and so there, there's something really important that we need to hear in this. Jesus came into the world 
to save the world. And, and we, we know that he's going to not save every single person because not every single person will turn from their sins. But those that do turn from their sins are made up of people from all corners of the earth, from everywhere. But it, it might be easy to initially read that and go, well, he came then for the Jewish people because Jesus became Jewish. He was born in Israel. He, he lived as a Jewish man and he, he was, that was his people. So did he come only for the Jewish people or did he come for more than that? And thankfully, Paul uh, in Romans answers that question for us. In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter four, Paul gets to that very question. And it's really, really helpful. Uh, So in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 4, he says this, and he's talking about uh, Abraham. And if you know your Old Testament, you know Abraham was the father of the Jewish people of Israel. And he uh, was called by God and um, brought into covenant with God and had a special relationship with God. Uh, And so his descendants became what we now know as uh, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites. And, and so Paul is among those people. He is, he is Jewish himself, but he is also the Gentile or the, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so what he's talking about here is this, that, uh, well, let's just back up to verse 13 to get the context. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Uh, for, uh, sorry, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but there is no law where there is no transgression. Verse 16, this is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring... So the grace is guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, but how does Paul define that offspring? Next sentence, or next phrase. Not only to the adherents of the law, that is a reference to the Jewish people, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gave life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So what Paul is saying here is this, that it's not about your physical descendants. It's not about your genealogy. It's about the faith that you have in Jesus. Your faith in Jesus makes you Abraham's offspring, which means that Jesus died for you if you trust him. Because if you trust him, you're now in, you're his people. That, that's the promise here, that it's not just a one particular group of people in the world that God is going to save. It's, it's people from all places and tribes and tongues and languages of the world, which is wonderful news for us. Because we can be brought in. We can be made part of this family, even though we didn't descend physically from this family. Jesus came to save all who would put their faith in him. There's a little uh, song that I'm not going to sing because that's why I have Crystal in my life. But, um, but there is a song that I learned in, in uh, Sunday school as a young kid. And it was, you probably heard it if you grew up in the church. 
Uh, it goes, Father Abraham had many sons. This is going to be stuck in your head all day. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And that's never going to leave your head all day. Um, and it's a real catchy tune. And as a kid, I would sing that, and I had no idea what it meant. But this is what it means. It's, it's pulled right out of Romans chapter 4, that we're all descendants of Abraham if we've trusted in Jesus. And that's, a, that's an amazing promise. And so Jesus came to, to save anyone who would put their faith in him. This is uh, highlighted in John chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who is one of the teachers of the, of the law. He was one of the Pharisees. And they're having a conversation at night um, because Nicodemus is a little bit unsure about Jesus, doesn't really want to publicly be in, you know, out there with Jesus. He kind of wants to learn without the criticism of talking to him because Jesus was not super popular uh, among the Pharisees. And so, in, but in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about um, how one is born again, how one is made new, how one is brought into this thing. And, uh, and he is saying simply this, that um, it, you, you have to believe and you have to trust, right? And so in verse 16, you all know this, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For, the, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that comes at the heels of a, of a conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus about how one is saved. And if you just step back to um, verse uh, 13, it says this, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what's that about? Well, he's, he's going back to this story in the book of Numbers where the, the people of Israel were in rebellion against God and God sent these uh, these f- serpents to bite everybody and poison them. <laughs> okay, now, there, but, so hang in there with me. Then what happens is everybody's like writhing around and dying and it's all horrible. But God tells Moses, you know what, you need to put a serpent, a, a bronze serpent up on a stick and put that up in the air. And anybody who looks at that serpent will instantly be healed. And so everybody who looks lives. And everyone who refuses to look dies. And then Jesus says this, just like that, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. And he's talking about his crucifixion, that I'm going to be lifted up, that whoever looks to me, he says, whoever's look, whoever comes to the cross, whoever comes to me will have eternal life. Not just have your life spared temporarily here on earth, which is what that serpent in the wilderness thing was pointing to, but have everlasting life, eternal life in him. He came to save his people, who, and that is whoever would look to him, whoever would come to him, whoever would believe in him. And that's when then he goes into that God loved the world. He loved the whole world, that whoever believes would have eternal life. Lastly here, we'll, we'll go back to Matthew 1 um, for this final 
phrase in this sentence. And it's these three simple words, he will save. I want to emphasize this because what we're seeing here is not that he might save, but that he will save his people from their sins. This is assurance for us that if we, and you know, here's the thing, we are always just conflicted people. Every one of us is conflicted and every one of us knows, uh, I think if we're, when we're honest with ourselves, we know there's something wrong in us. We know there's something broken in us. And even after Jesus comes into our lives, there's still things that are messed up. There are still things that are messy and not what they should be. And we know that intuitively. But the promise of Jesus becoming a, a person and living a sinless life and going to the cross and rising again is, is not to give us some little maybe hope that he'll save us, but will actually assure us that he will save. Not that he might save, but he will. This is a promise that God, and God always keeps his promises. So here's one more from Spurgeon, and we'll close with, with this and maybe a little bit after. I don't know. We'll see. See where it goes. But here's what Spurgeon says about this. I thought this was really helpful too. It says, Jesus came into the world not to half save you, not to save you in this direction or that, or in this light or that, but to save you from your sin, to save you from your angry temper, to save you from pride, to save you from drunkenness, to save you from covetousness, to save you from every evil thing, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is a glorious truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to Bethlehem's manger and afterward to Calvary's cross with this as his one business that he might save sinners. So here's the good news for you and me. If you're a sinner, Jesus came to save you. And he didn't come just to maybe save you. He came to save you. He will save his people from their sins. You, you and I will always struggle and stumble with sin on this side of, of glory. We will always struggle. We will always wrestle with it. We, we, we should see ourselves wrestling with sin. If we are completely 100% content with our sin as we are, it's an indication that we're not saved. But if Jesus has saved us, you are going to wrestle with the tension, the tension between whether or not you're in or out at times even, this, this fear or doubt that maybe I'm not in because I'm still struggling. Shouldn't it all be figured out by now? Shouldn't I stop doing this, X, Y, Z, whatever it is your sin, your sin uh, inclinations are? I'm, I'm still prideful. I'm still angry. I'm still getting drunk or whatever it is, right? That whatever it is that's plaguing you, we may look at that stuff and go, I'm, I'm hopeless. I'm helpless. I can't do this. But here's the thing. Jesus came to save you. And if you're humble and acknowledge that your sin is bad enough to send Jesus to the cross and that he did that for you, he's, he extends his mercy to you. He gives you his grace. 
in the midst of your sin, he gives you his grace. He didn't come to just half save you. He came to save sinners. That was the mission Jesus was on. From the manger to the cross to the empty tomb, that's the mission, to save sinners. And he has done it masterfully, wonderfully. There is no one that Jesus can't save. There is nothing that Jesus can't heal. Jesus can do anything and everything to bring you to him. And as we're going to hear in our benediction from Spurgeon read it here, but Jude chapter, uh, at the end of Jude, it says, and he will present you blameless. I'm doing this from memory because I'm taking forever to turn to this. He will present you blameless before his presence with great joy. He will present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the end goal for all of us as Christians. That's, uh, that's our end, being presented blameless before the presence of God. Why? Because we're so good or impressive or have all these great things going for us? No, but because Jesus faithfully and wonderfully does the saving that only he can do. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue our time in worship and partaking of the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your great love for us that would bring you down to earth, that you would come into our world, that you would become one of us, astounding to think about. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be drawn to Jesus today because you came to save each of us from our sins. Would you help us to rest in that today, God? Would you help us to rejoice in that, that we will be presented to you in your presence, blameless. Thank you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.